There's this great little line in that wonderful kids' carol we love to sing this time of year called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It sings like this, even if you're sitting by yourself, you can sing it with me. Yet in thy dark streets shining the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I love those lines, dark streets shining. Sounds like a great title to an Advent series of sermons, dark streets shining. Christian hope in a realist world, dark streets shining. Nurses and doctors and healthcare professionals overwhelmed, at least in this region of the country, by the number of cases and hospital capacity, while the rest of us are just wishing the cases would disappear dark streets. Drug overdose in America up 30% this time, up 30% over against this time last year, another consequence of an anxious age, dark streets. Bombs in Uganda and Nigeria, dozens of migrants drown off the French coast, And so many other stories I won't pile on now, dark streets. And racial tensions so real and political tensions so high. And that's not to mention all of the stuff you're sitting with anyway, dark streets. Shining is the gospel. Shining is the announcement of God. The infant child laid in the sharp edges of of a first century manger in the backwater town called Bethlehem to the unsuspecting mother and the shocked father for the stunned world, a light that would shine so bright no darkness would ever overcome it. Dark streets shining is the gospel. John puts it like this, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What came into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That's the gospel. Advent, that season of the year that actually by its mere nature, invites us to acknowledge the darkness. Not just the shorter days, but I mean the darkness that swirls around us. I want you to listen with me to the story of the emerging darkness as the Bible tells it. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God say, you may not eat of the fruit of any of the trees that are in the garden? And and the woman said, we may freely eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden. But God said, of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. The serpent said, you will not die, for God knows Your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and 
it was a delight to the eyes, and it, it was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, she ate. She gave some to her husband also, who was with her. And he ate, and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called out to the man and the woman, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid because I'm naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? You shall not eat of it. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. And to the serpent, God said, Because you've done this, cursed are you among all the animals and among all the wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and the dust of the ground you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will strike at your head. You will strike at his heel. And to the woman God said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you'll bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. And to the man... God said, because you've done this and listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall labor over it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall produce for you by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. And the man named the woman Eve because... She was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God formed garments of skin for the man and his wife and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Genesis 3. That's the Bible's way of introducing us to the emerging darkness that's been hovering still. The Bible really never intends to exhaustively address the question, why does evil exist? We don't get clear, quick, easy answers to the why. Did God ordain it? Is God good but not powerful? If he, meaning he, he, he didn't want it to happen, but he couldn't stop it from happening. Or maybe he's powerful but not good. He could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it. Or how, can it. how can he be both powerful and good and still darkness? Or maybe it's some other twist in God's providence. The Bible doesn't answer clearly all of our why questions. And this sermon certainly isn't going to exhaust all of the questions about the darkness either. But I do think we can notice a few things from Genesis 3. Swapping stories, changing names, reducing God. That ought to make you hungry on this first Sunday in the season of Advent. Swapping stories. What I mean is, they'd given up this big, huge, expansive, beautiful, unfolding story of God's redemption for something more manageable, something they could control, a list of boxes to check. Here's what I mean. 
The serpent slips up behind the woman, says, Did God say you may not eat of the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, We may freely eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden. But God said, and here it is, God said, Of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. Which is not what God said. If you're willing to rewind with me just a few verses in one chapter to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Open up your own Bible and pay attention. There's no talk of the tree in the middle in Genesis 2. There's no talk of touching in Genesis 2, the tree in Genesis 2. She had swapped a story. And if you think I'm being biblically tedious or making a mountain out of a molehill, let me point you to the early rabbis who suggested these verses in Genesis 3 are the beginning of the fence around the law. In other words, swapping stories, giving giving up the big, huge, expansive story of God's salvation for a list of rules we could follow, though impossible to do so. They just kept adding up and adding up. They swapped stories. And we swap stories still for something more manageable, something we can control. And the stories we change out never fulfill the promises they make. I was with some friends two Thursdays ago, not Thanksgiving, but the Thursday before, at the Warden Group on 17th Street and Lincoln here in Holland. The Warden Group is a furniture company. Taylor DeRue works there. He's a part of, with a dozen or so others, a cohort of people we call the Center for Marketplace Witness. Our effort, another effort, to equip women and men for robust gospel witness in the workplace. We figured if we're going to equip people for gospel work in the workplace, we ought to go to the workplace. So a couple of Thursdays ago, we were at the Warden Group, a beautiful building and an amazing company, and Taylor gave us this stunning tour. I was inspired, and he's one of so many of you who work at amazing places. I invited my, tr- my friend Trig to join us that Thursday night to share with the group some of the stories that are constantly vying for our allegiance, constantly competing for our attention. Here's a bit of the slideshow he offered. The American Dream, the story of upward mobility and material security, nationalism, the story of manifest destiny, modernity, the story of enlightenment as revelation, postmodernity, the story of personal experience as truth, social justice, the story of equality as salvation, Achievement, the story of performance as meaning. Sex and sexuality, the story of eros as fulfillment. Self-improvement, the story of personal growth for success. Culture wars, the story of partisan politics. Beauty, the story of appearance as worth. Health, the story of fitness as redemption. Science and technology, the story of technology as deliverance. None of these stories require God. There's something about each of them that might be true and could be good and is probably beautiful, but they don't require God. We swap stories still. So here's an Advent invitation for you. Join me in memorizing, I know, tall, tall order. Join me in memorizing John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 18. It's called the prologue to John. And as a companion, pick up here at Pillar 
one of the copies of Simply Christian by N.T. Wright. And while you're at it, grab the pillar journal as a prayer companion along the way. Let's immerse ourselves in the story, the big, huge, glorious story of God's expansive, unfolding redemption in the whole world. We've got to stop swapping stories. Dark streets shining. Swapping stories and changing names. If we're going to acknowledge the darkness this Advent, we have to be willing to acknowledge so often and too quickly we're willing to change names. And I don't mean your name. I mean we're so quick to forget who we really are. It's Genesis 3 again. The serpent slips up behind the woman. And this is what the serpent said. You will not die For God knows, this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Very alluring. The problem is they were like God. That's the story of creation. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So God made humankind in his image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them. They already were like God. They were being duped into changing names, giving up who they really were for a faster, quicker, easier, you can have it now sort of way. And the temptation remains true for us still. It's called identity politics. Constantly taking what is secondary, derivative, and making it primary. And every time we do that, we will find ourselves disappointed. What if you belong to Christ? What if that's who you are? What if that's most true? What if you are the beloved of God? What if you are made in the image of God, assigned to the world of God's heart for the world? And when we, when we change our own names, when we give up our truest sense of who we are, we also treat others as if they're not who they really are. But rather, they are what they stick in their yard, or they are what they post on social media, or the tweet they twit in 140 characters as if that is the full picture of their whole heart. So we reduce people by categorizing them. Progressive, liberal, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor. We we know who you are. We've got you categorized. And then we can control people because we know who they are. We can keep them there. They're one of those. Showing no curiosity for the deeper, better, truer story of who they really are. A child of God too. The temptation to forget who they really are, came with instant gratification. You will be like God, they were made in the image of God, knowing good and evil. The temptation, you don't have to go through the process. You don't need the cross. You don't need the infant child in the Bethlehem town. You don't need the virgin mother and the shocked father. You don't need Calvary and the grave and the resurrection. You can have it now. The cost of discipleship is not just, isn't actually to make your life hard, but rather to make you who you always were. We go the way of Jesus, who went the way of the cross, to become who we truly are, made in the image of God. I like the way Henry Nouwen puts it. He wrote a book titled, 
life of the beloved. I think I've probably shared this with you before. Aren't you, like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, you'll go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we're, whether we're getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. Well, you and I don't have to kill ourselves. We are the beloved We are intimately loved long before our parents or teachers or spouses or children or friends loved or wounded us. The truth of our lives, that's the truth I want you to claim for yourself. That's the truth spoken by the voice that says, you are my beloved. That's who you are. Let's stop changing names. Yet in thy dark streets, shining, swapping stories, changing names, reducing God, That's what happened. Listen to this. This is verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid because I'm naked, and I hid myself. I was afraid. Afraid? Afraid of God? What evidence at this point in the story of God's unfolding salvation did they have to be afraid of God? God birthed them out of his heart of love, and when he saw the creation for the first time, said, oh my word, it's so good. And then even when he thought, you know, maybe I could tweak this a little bit, make it just that much better, and finally the woman came along, thriving, flourishing, fullness, God loved everything that he had made, and each day, apparently, if I'm reading Genesis 3, well, at the time of the each day, God walking with the man and the woman, a luxurious garden stroll, what evidence did they have to be afraid of God? They reduced God to a snapshot of a portion of might be true of him, but lost the full view of who he actually is. And we do it still. God, as the benevolent grandfather doling out $20 bills and warm hugs and words of encouragement. But then what do you do when suffering takes place and pain takes hold? You hide from God blaming the benevolent grandfather for not doling out another 20 or, or, or God as the divine flamethrower trying to burn each of us at every misstep. But what do you do with a God who's so willing to lavish grace to each and every one of us who call on his name? We hide from God and blame the divine flamethrower for not being as bitter as I am. Or God, the eternalized version of manifest destiny. If you want it, you can have it. But what happens when you can't have it? What happens 
when no matter how hard you work and no matter what you do and all the strings you pull, it just doesn't seem to go the way you wish it'd go. You hide from God, blaming the eternalized version of manifest destiny for not making good on his end of the bargain. We reduce God at our own peril. God, who's so willing to come to us, came to them then, even after they ate of the fruit, God still showed up to them with clothing to cover their shame, came to Noah with an ark and Abram and Sarai with a promise and Isaac with a ram and Jacob with a dream and Ruth with a family and Esther with a moment and Moses with a freedom journey until finally he came in the fullness of time in his own son, Jesus Christ, the infant child born in the Bethlehem town to save the world. Crucified king becomes resurrected Lord. The light shines in the darkness, yet in thy dark street shining. It's been a long 20 months, my friends. I don't know how you're feeling. I, I can remember this time last year, Advent last year, we were thinking about Christmas. What are we going to do? We weren't meeting in person this time last year. What are we going to do for Christmas Eve? We got to worship together on Christmas Eve. We concocted this outdoor service. It was really actually quite cool. I mean, it was actually extremely cold and a really wonderful service. I can remember thinking that night in the cold on the porch of the front lawn at Pillar, I can remember thinking, I can't wait till next Christmas. Finally, all of this will be over. And here we are, cases, at least in Ottawa County, higher than they've ever been. We've made some mistakes along the way. You know we have. And you've been so generous with us. We're so grateful for you. We've tried some new things along the way, and you've just been willing to try them along with us. We've done some things we'll probably never not do at Pillar who knew Pillar would have an online worshiping experience? And you've just rolled with it. We are so grateful for who you are and the way you've comported yourselves in this crazy time. And we're eager to continue the journey with you. Do you remember when we started all of these online worship experiences? I mean, I not just mean the preaching into a camera and some songs, but I mean we started adding video, like, people from around the world bringing greetings or a family member of Pillar giving testimony or some other version of someone from somewhere joining us in worship. It's been a delight. There's so many highlights for me along the way. Certainly the video of our children last year saying thank you as part of a baptismal celebration. I thought that I cried actually. And then another one that I'll never forget that, that stays with me still we asked a bunch of you to record yourselves singing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I thought this Advent you might like to take another look.